Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Austin, I got to tell you, I have been waiting for someone to come on our podcast and talk about sleep for a while. You've heard me almost to the point of bitching about let's find somebody that can actually talk about this topic of sleep. Well, I think it's more prevalent than people understand. I think it's like the the silent killer in this community a little bit because I would say 95% of the patients that we treat have some type of sleep issue that does not resolve itself without some type of heavy medication, which I understand the need for it, but I don't love that route to go. Um, and I, I just want to learn new ways to go about it. Well, even just the group this morning that I, I was running, uh, one of the comments that was made through the gratitude was, I'm grateful for the opportunity to just sleep. I mean, people don't recognize until they actually sleep how much they miss on this sleeping piece. And without actually digging in, I want to introduce our guest. And I, I got to give Megan Louts props because she's the one that connected us with our new friend, Annette Zapp, who's with Lyle Woodridge Fire Department. Annette, welcome to the podcast. No one fights alone. Thank you so much for having me and a little shout out to my girl, Megan. I was actually just on the phone with Megan before this episode. So. Oh, she was a lot of fun. She was so much fun to have on. She is definitely high energy. Uh, Megan once said that if she doesn't get credit for cardio while doing her presentations, it wasn't a good presentation. I did see her in a picture. Uh, I did see a picture of her in a bacon outfit. Oh my God. I picked up Megan from the airport last fall and she was wearing bacon outfit at Midway Airport wearing the bacon outfit. Well, Annette, tell us a little bit about you. Tell the listeners uh, who you are, what you got going on, and uh, and then let's see if we can dive into something cool. Well, if I can um, take a little bit of creative license, I want to dive into something really cool first, and then I'll tell you who I am. So Austin mentioned that so many of the patients that we deal with have complications, health complications due to their sleep. But let's instead, let's aim the lens on firefighters. And the top two things that take the lives of our firefighters on duty are cardiovascular disease complications and some sort of accident, whether it's motor vehicle falling off a roof, whatever. Okay. Top two on duty killers of firefighters, firefighters. Top two off-duty killers of firefighters, suicide and cancer. Do you know what an independent risk factor for all four of those things that take the lives of our firefighters is? Say sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation. Independent risk factor for the top four things that take the lives of our firefighters. But now, instead of hijacking your podcast, let me just answer your question. Um, first off, my name is Annette Zapp. Most people call me AZ for obvious reasons, and how I like to introduce myself is this way. I am a biochemist by degree. I am a strength and conditioning coach and a nutritionist by credential. I am a firefighter by trade, and I'm a business owner because I found what broke my heart. Glennon Doyle says, find what breaks your heart, that is your purpose. And what breaks my heart is we take men and women from the general population we prepare them very poorly for a career full of sleep deprivation and trauma. And then we, we wonder, why do they have all these 
health issues? Why is there such a prevalence of alcoholism, type 2 diabetes, suicide, cancer? Well, it's because we took the general population and we didn't prepare them for a career in the fire service. And as you mentioned, I am a nearly 20-year veteran of the fire service. I hold the rank of lieutenant. I'm currently off on kind of a major surgery. I just had a knee replacement on June 2nd. And um, that pretty much summarizes me. And I don't own a bacon costume, although Megan has offered to get me one. <laughs> so I, I want to, as I'm thinking here and thinking of if it was myself listening here, like sleep deprivation is such a broad term, right? Like it feels like if, you know, you're reading some type of news article or something, anything less than eight hours could somewhat be defined as sleep deprivation. But I don't know if that's the truth or not. I mean, can you go in and define exactly what that means? And, and maybe if there's different levels or classifications or, or whatever it may be. Sure. Uh, first, I can make it really easy. Dr. Uh, Dr. Jen Goldschmidt, who is another sleep neuroscientist, basically says, um, how do you know if you're getting enough sleep? And the answer is, if you're tired, you're not getting enough sleep. So it's that simple. But like almost everything in the world sleep, the amount of sleep that people need exists on a bell-shaped curve. And so if you look at math scores, if you look at sizes of little kids' feet, if you look at height, it's usually distributed on a bell-shaped curve. And the same thing occurs with sleep. And that sweet spot for sleep is seven to nine hours. So it's a range. And the interesting thing is that your mortality risk I'm not mistaken, is about 14% higher if you get less than seven hours of sleep on a nightly basis. And so as firefighters, we might think, yes, more is better. I should be aiming for 10 or 12. But interestingly enough, your mortality risk is still a little bit higher than normal when you get more than nine hours of sleep on a daily sort of basis. Now, I want to qualify that. I'm not talking about the firefighter who sleeps 12 hours because they haven't slept in the last two days. I'm not talking about that. That's paying back sleep debt. I'm talking about, say, the accountant who sleeps in his or her bed every single night and typically gets greater than nine hours of sleep every night. It appears that their mortality risk is a bit higher. So seven to nine hours is the sweet spot. And then you'll hear the people that say, I thrive on two or four or whatever. And it's bullshit. Genetically, there are some individuals who have a genetic profile that truly does allow them to thrive on less sleep. But statistically, it's such a small percentage of the population that it's definitely not one of us three. And it's probably not in the thousands of friends and family that we all know. It's very small. And so long answer to your short question, seven to nine hours seems to be the sweet spot for amount of sleep. You know, I had an uncle uh, and, and I, I often used him as a reference because he was functional on about four hours sleep. And when I say functional, it was high degree. He was highly intelligent. He was a, an engineer uh, for a major uh, car company, extremely successful, had a day's work in before most people got up. He and he was he was the unique. Uh, now I've come to recognize that he was probably that small percentage, but he was a good excuse 
for me to say, well, I could be like that guy because I can do four, five hours. He truly was uh, and, and lived a very successful life. Uh, he's passed now, but, uh, you know, he was into his 80s. Uh, just, and he just, that was all the sleep that he required, but man, I've, I've since discovered that I am not in that category. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Well, and I like to tell people that surviving is not the same thing as thriving and not dead is not the same thing as kicking ass. And so even though your uncle did very well, I wonder, I wonder how he would have been on seven hours of sleep. Just curious, Maybe. out of curiosity. So, so let's uh, let's dive in here a little bit as to kind of tell us the the if we're all engineers, let's just pretend nobody knows anything about sleep for just a minute. And why is sleep so important? What's really uh, because from a from a firefighter or even a first responder, I mean, we're missing the boat here a lot. I, I'm really passionate about this sleep piece because I have learned a lot, but there's so much that I still don't know. Um, what are Take it, take us on a little sleep journey here as to why this is so important. I love this question and I hope I'm not going to miss any of the train stops because they're all really important. We can start first with sort of the physiological things that happen while you sleep and then make sure and bring me back to the mental behavioral health things that happen while we sleep. Don't let me forget that. So physiologically while we sleep, let's actually start while we're awake. While we're awake, we're building up, we can be cute and just call it trash in our brain. Um, Or we can be more correct and say um, tau and beta amyloid particles. We're building these up in our brain. And the beautiful thing is that while we sleep, the glymphatic with a G, the glymphatic system washes it away from our brain. And the reason these particles are interesting is that they've been implicated uh, in possibly causing Alzheimer's and dementia. And so it is possible that we are increasing our risk for Alzheimer's and dementia by not adequately sleeping. Uh, It's not to say, you know, you have a 30-year career as a night shift police officer, you are you know, definitely going to get Alzheimer's or dementia because you didn't sleep adequately. It's not to say that, but it's, I'm just saying that there's got to be some correlation there. So the brain is being washed while we're sleeping. Things are also going on with our um, metabolic and immune system while we're sleeping. And so as you can probably, if you think back to the last time you went to a bachelor party in Vegas or a bachelor party fishing trip or whatever it was. You didn't get enough sleep. You probably drank too much. You didn't treat yourself that well. But typically what happens is your immune system is stressed and it it hasn't been quote unquote restocked from sleep. And so the first thing that happens once you get home, you get sick, cough, cold, flu, whatever. So we have the brain implications. We have the immune system. And then we have to look at the hormone system. And there's several different hormones that come into play. The first one, the hunger hormones, ghrelin and leptin, the ones that tell us, hey, fat ass, you're full, stop eating, or whoa, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. Those hormones are, again, they regulate our appetite. And when we don't get adequate sleep, our appetite isn't adequately 
regulated. Then to add insult to injury, so now our appetite's out of control. So normally this one would never consider stopping at McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts or name it. I would never consider that. But now I've been up all night at a fire. I'm not making great decisions. I stop and I get two bacon, egg, cheese bagels, a hash brown, and a whatever, milkshake. The insult to injury is not only are my appetite hormones uh, not working as designed, my metabolic hormones aren't either. So the impact of that not great choice, what would Megan say? Megan would say, that is not a healthy-ish choice. (laughs) The impact of that unhealthy-ish choice is going to be greater on my body. So that's kind of the short-term metabolic impact. The long-term metabolic impact is diabetes type 2. So inability to regulate our insulin and our blood sugar. So I hit the brainwashing. I hit the immunity. I hit some of the hormones. This is the one that usually gets the, the men in the crowd to perk up their ears and listen. When we look at research, we have to be really careful. Is this research done? The aspartame research, for example, did you hear the big controversy just this past week or two about aspartame? Yeah. yeah. So the, the um, CDC or World Health, I can't remember which one, came out and said it's a type 2B carcinogen, which when you really look at it, a 2B carcinogen is might cause cancer in humans. And the aspartame research, from my understanding, I am not an expert on aspartame by any means, but uh, from what I know, it was done in an animal model at really high dosages. So that's where we have to be careful with research. Does it really apply? So this research was done in University of Chicago college students. They were young males, 18, 19, maybe 20 years old, and they gave them a sleep deprivation, uh, I'll call it a challenge, um, which was they sleep deprived them for five nights only. But during those five nights, they still got five hours of sleep. So I would argue that's more than our first responders are getting a lot of nights. So five nights, five hours of sleep, and their testosterone was diminished, diminished by around 15%. So then the men in the audience will say, Well, yeah, but AZ, you just told me you have to be careful about research, and that's not us. 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, that's not us. And what I come back to you with is, as an 18, 19, and 20-year-old, you're probably far more resilient and able to buffer the impact of sleep deprivation. So now we're talking about older individuals, and this was five nights. We're talking about careers of 15, 20, 25 years ongoing sleep deprivation. So those are kind of the big high points. And I want to go back to the immunity for one second. The short-term impact I told you about, you go on a bachelor party, you come back, you get sick. The long-term impact that we need to think about is mediating or modulating cancer is also an immune response. Our immune system is involved in fighting cancer. And so there is a higher chance of getting cancer when you are routinely sleep deprived. So I think I hit the physiological things I wanted to talk about. 
The last one that's really important that I want to hit is the mental health component of it. Because we are taking civilians, we are having them raise their right hand, I swear to protect lives and property, we sleep deprive them, we traumatize them, and what we have to remember is that trauma is processed while we sleep. So if we are not sleeping adequately, we have no chance to properly and adequately process the trauma that we're experiencing. It's connecting so many dots for me right now. Like it's, I'm, I'm flabbergasted a little bit because specifically on the fire side with men in testosterone, what I have noticed as well is a majority, if we're going to talk about patients that we treat once again, a majority of the patients on the male side, on the fire side, come into our center with testosterone replacement. And I've always wondered that. I'm like, I, I, there's a lot of people that are on that testosterone replacement that come in and specifically on the fire side. And that may have to do with the sleep, obviously, that you're talking about. But then also, and I did know about the the processing of, of trauma in, in sleep as well, which then, you know, on top of everything, right, you're not able to sleep because you have never processed that trauma because it is one call to the next call to the next call, you know, continuously some nights. And we wonder why people struggle, right? Like, Well, and, and the thing that we have to also keep in mind with the sleep is that memories are consolidated while we sleep as well. So this is the example I use when I give my talks. Imagine you have a probationary firefighter and he's a, he or she's a single role firefighter. And then the department says, we're going to send you to paramedic school. Now, at least in Illinois, when a department sends someone to paramedic school, they need to cover their time while they're in school, but they're also coming back to the department and working at night. So for example, they're in school Monday through Friday, they're getting paid from seven to four Monday through Friday, but their normal shift is Tuesday and Friday. So they have to come back and work a shift after they get out of school Tuesday and Friday. Now imagine you taught that young man or woman cardiology and they listened and they took notes and you're like, yes, this person is getting it. Then they went back to the station and got fragmented or no sleep that night. They come back the next day and you're frustrated as hell with them because it seems like they weren't even listening the day before not necessarily their fault because they didn't get to consolidate those memories. So I want to, I want to circle us back here a little bit to before we, before we dive into kind of what can we do about some of this? Uh, I want to go back to that hunger hormone com- part of the conversation. What is the impact of those truly like on a, I, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I feel like I hear what you're saying on the concepts of what, what those are doing to our body, but on a, on a, as a first responder, what's the big deal? What's, what's, what are those really, what's the impact of those two, uh, hunger hormones doing to me and how are they impacting my sleep? So the hunger hormones aren't impacting the sleep, but the sleep or lack thereof is impacting the hunger Mm. hormones. So there's two of them. And this is how I remember it. There's ghrelin, G H G H R E. Oh gosh, there's letters in there, but I just remember ghrelin is like, grr, my stomach is growling. 
And then leptin is the one that says, again, hey, fat butt, you're full. If those hormones are not giving the proper signal, so you are way hungrier. I, th- I read a study once that it, when you are sleep deprived, you eat an average of five to 600 additional calories during the following wow. day. Whoa. Because the ghrelin is saying, hungry, hungry, and the leptin is not kicking in adequately to say, okay, that's enough. And so the other thing I think I want to point this out. I am a biochemist by degree, but I am very, very, very far removed from research anymore. So I don't want to give the impression that I'm an expert in hormones or anything like that. Anyone that tells you you can master your hormones or conquer your hormones or it's all bullshit. But what I can tell you is that inadequate sleep does nothing good for your hormones. And to take it one step further from what Austin said, so this whole low testosterone kind of came to my attention through the work of Dr. Kirk Parsley, who is a Navy SEAL doctor. He was a Navy SEAL himself. Then he became a medical doctor. And what he was finding was that these very young men on the teams, some of them 23, 24, I mean, you don't usually find 40-year-old Navy SEALs. There might be, but usually they're younger. These men had clinically significantly decreased testosterone. And we, when we look at testosterone, the range, your lab range that you get is 300 to usually 1,100 nanograms per deciliter. And that's what the lab says is normal. It's not necessarily optimal. And we have to remember that these lab ranges were derived from something called the Framingham study, which is a very long longitudinal study. I think it's almost 40 years now from a town, I think it's in Massachusetts, somewhere on the East Coast. But they basically monitored these people. It was a a giant research project where they monitored all these people and they took all these lab values over the course of years. But what you have to remember is that they didn't exclude sick people. They didn't exclude the extremely old and they didn't exclude the extremely young. And so as a 90-year-old man who has testosterone of 300, it's probably still not optimal, but it's kind of like, okay, we get it. Um, for a 23-year-old Navy SEAL, 301, you're within range, isn't optimal. They're not going to feel good. They're not going to perform well. Um, They're going to be miserable. So uh, take one point here is that those lab ranges are from a longitudinal study. Again, that includes sick, old, young, everyone. Why do people not know about this? That's that's part of like, because I'm thinking about from an educational standpoint right now, I feel like the education to our society, to our first responders, to to whoever it may be is extremely important. Why are they leaving these facts out? Because we, I mean, Brad, have you ever heard in your first responder 25-year career, have you ever heard any of this talk about sleep? No, I didn't start learning about this until um, I started seeing a naturopath. I started seeing a naturopath doctor. 
And when I started seeing this naturopath, it started, uh, it really started putting some pieces of the puzzle together on some hormone stuff that I had going on. Uh, and, and, and technically I was like Annette said just a little bit ago, I was within range, but I was not optimal. I was not, uh, producing, uh, some of the things that I probably should have been producing. And, and since then, uh, and this, this is part of this recovery journey of really getting my health back in line. So this is, this is pretty new to me as well, uh, for, you know, with just within the last few years of learning, starting to learn. So no, to answer your question, no, this was not talked about. Now it was, it was talked about that, that, you know, just from a large big picture frame of, we want our people as, as a leader in my agency, we want our people to not be sleep deprived, but the nuances of the why was left void. Well, we have to consider this in the lens, uh, basically, we'll call it two sides of the same lens or coin. The first one is the American healthcare system is broken. It's not a healthcare system. It's a sick care system. And the insurance model dictates what you can and cannot do. And just physical therapy, for example, they get you barely able back to do your activities of daily living. And then they pat you on your butt and say, bye now, good luck. So the insurance model is broken. And the second piece of it is, I'm glad you brought up naturopaths because I'm a huge fan, but many times they're not covered by insurance. Mine is not. And so Mine, many, mine's not. Mine's, yep, many people, mine's all out of pocket. Yep. And many people are unwilling to make that investment. Um, and you just have to kind of like, I was lucky enough to find a naturopathic doctor that was in my insurance network and then she passed away. So here I am back in the shitty American healthcare model. So you may be able to, to better delineate what a naturopath is. Can you, can you tell us a little bit uh, from a more uh, structured background, what that is? I mean, I don't, I don't mind saying it, but, but uh, maybe what is, what is your impression of what that naturopath looks like and why? In terms of schooling, I can't tell you exactly what the difference is, but here's what I can tell you in terms of treatment. A naturopath is looking for the cause. A traditional medical doctor is generally looking to treat a symptom. So for example, me, Annette, since I started the fire, fire service, my fasting glucose has been creeping up, which is very common in first responders, but it's more common in overweight or obese first responders than what we would term more normal weight people. Plus, when you look at my diet, my intake, if you will, I do not eat a dietary intake that would lead you to believe type 2 diabetes. You would go, no way. There's no way that this girl's blood sugar is creeping. So part of it is that sleep deprivation. But actually, I had thyroid cancer in 2013, I believe it was. And people that have no thyroid also have issues controlling their blood sugar for other reasons. So the naturopath was able to drill down to that instead of just saying eat better and, or you're going to have to go on a medication. She was able to drill down through all those pieces and treat the problem 
rather than the symptom. And how do they do that differently though? Like what are they addressing on that front end? Cause I think all of us have gone to the doctor and said, Hey, run my blood and see what's going on. Right. Like is, is there a different process for the naturopath to look and actually diagnose and solve? Yes. They're more like a detective. So doctors, no disrespect to MDs, but they're trying to see six people per hour And most of the general American population is unhealthy as all get out. And so they're just trying to put band-aids on symptoms as fast as they can. And and that's why my aunt who died two years ago was on eight medications. And even me as a non-doctor looked at her medications and I, I was horrified because of the amounts and the way they were treating her. And so... It goes back to being a detective and instead of running just a regular, whatever, comprehensive metabolic panel, they're running potentially additional blood tests that would show, for example, um, I methylate poorly and that leads to some of the outcomes that I have in some of my blood testing, but a normal quote unquote MD would never know that I methylate poorly because they didn't pull the other labs. Here's an even better example. When you're, when you're tired, I have a firefighter that's tired. Oh, I'm so tired. I'm going to go get my thyroid checked. Well, first I always am like, Hey, Bozo, you've gotten three hours of sleep for the last 20 years. It's not your thyroid. Get some sleep. But when they go to get their thyroid checked, the general test that is always run why is it escaping me right now? I feel so dumb. Anyway, there's one test that they always run, and that's to uh, and that allegedly gives them a whole snapshot into what's going on with your thyroid. And so a way better way to do it is run a whole panel of tests. So T4, T3, reverse T3. Brad, can you help me out? What is the one that they always run? And I'm drawing a blank remember. too. I know what you're. I, I know what you're referring to, but I, I'm I'm the same way. It doesn't okay. tell Keep the whole going. picture. Yep. Yeah, so it doesn't tell the whole picture. But a naturopathic doctor will run more tests to get a bigger picture. So after I got my thyroid out, they put me on Synthroid, which is pretty much standard of care. It's a T4, but in your body, that's not active. T4 is not active. And so your body has to activate it to T3. Well, because my whatever lab test that neither Brad or I can think of right now wasn't changing by giving me more Synthroid, my naturopath said, okay, there must be something more to this. So when she ran the T4, the T3, the reverse T3, what she found, you can give me as much Synthroid as you want to. It's never going to help me because I don't convert it. To the active form. So then she came up with another dosing strategy where I take Synthroid and something called Cytomel 2, which is T3. I feel much better. If I was at a traditional doctor, I would still probably be going back and back and back for greater dosages of Synthroid and feeling like crap. So one of the things that I think uh, I want to back up here just a minute, and then I want to get us back on some sleep stuff, but I love where this conversation is going. So, th- so the dumbed down, ver- correct me if I'm wrong here. And the dumbed down version of methylate is how your body's processing uh, certain negative things out of your body. Correct. 
Is that is that? Yeah, that's that's my basic understanding. Yeah. It all has something to do with homocysteine, and you know, it's a genetic yes. thing. Uh, because of the field that I'm in, I have some really unique snapshots of my genetics that that make me go, oh, yep, that's absolutely correct. Because my my SNPs, they're called SNPs, are telling the same story as my blood work, which is telling the same story is how I feel. So th- I guess where I'm going with this is is this this seems to be pretty w- what I've learned. And again, I'm just I'm just a dumb cop on here talking about some things that are way over my head. But this seems to be a pretty common growing trend that people generically are not methylating correctly. And the first responder community are more prone to uh, that that uh, aversion to methylating correctly, which would be um, uh, now that's there's no research. I'm not I'm not a researcher again, but we're talking about this is this is getting negative things out of our body right through pooping or peeing or sweating or, you know, right. And, and, and that what we're talking about, I mean, this is, this is getting rid of, getting rid of negative things that we ingest or inhale into our bodies and getting it out. Um, and I, the reason I say this is that we take in, um, if we eat poorly, let's just use that as an example. If we eat poorly, um, we don't methylate that properly, then we're storing that. And what I understand, uh, the, the common one that I think of right off the top of my head is the preservatives in a lot of our food. If we're not eating organic or, or proper uh, food consumption, then preservatives go straight to body fat. That's, is this resonated at all? So I have to remind my, I have a lot of friends in academia and they are so great to me. They reach out to me. They're like, Hey girl, Hey, you want to write a creatine (laughs) review with us? And I'm like, you remember I'm a dumb firefighter, right? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but it's going to be. So I've gotten myself like lassoed onto like three. Ap- ac- I'm a co-author on the ISSN position stand on tactical athlete fueling. It's PhDs and a dumb firefighter. <laughs> but I have to be really honest with you. I am not capable and well-equipped to talk about that topic. I would be completely bullshitting you. Um, I, I let my doctor handle that part of it and probably don't know as much about it as I should. Well, let's circle back to, uh, let's circle back to sleep. Let's go back to. Let's... Okay. Let's do that. <laughs> Cause we went at, we went in a rabbit hole there that, that is fascinating. And I, I, I think it's really important, uh, but we can save that for another day. What, what are the components of sleep that we should be thinking about? What, what are some of the things that we could do better uh, and the why? I think the easiest, the no brainer is if you need seven to nine hours of sleep, and I just told you that you do, you cannot get seven to nine hours of sleep if you go to bed at midnight and you have to get up at four. The math does not math. And so the biggest, I think the biggest thing that we can do is give ourselves that sleep opportunity, give ourselves the ability to get adequate sleep. So that's number one. Maybe that's number two. We also have to think about there's a couple reasons for sleep deprivation um, categories. There's a couple categories of sleep deprivation. There's the self-imposed and then there's the sleep disorders. And so disorders like apnea, narcolepsy, restless leg syndrome, those are actual clinical insomnia, 
actual clinical sleep disorders that people should be seeking treatment for. And a great way to screen for those sleep disorders is readily available online. It's called the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. And the interesting thing about the PSQI, I think, I can't remember how many questions it is, but I think you can score up to 20 something. I can't remember it. It's, it's evading me right now. But anyone that scores over five on the PSQI should probably either really examine their sleep hygiene and their, are you striving for seven to nine hours, or they may have a sleep disorder. And interestingly enough, in the fire service, remember I talked about studies, some of them don't apply. Some of them seem like they don't apply, but they apply. This one applies. It was done in 6,000 firefighters. It's called the Sullivan study. And the 6,000 firefighters were screened and they found that 37% of them had a diagnosable sleep disorder. And you're like, okay, a little less than half. It seems like a lot but maybe not that big of a deal. It is a big deal because then they took that 37% and they looked at them again and found that 80% of those people were neither diagnosed nor treated. And so we have the potential for a huge bunch of us walking around with an undiagnosed sleep disorder. So sleep disorders are one thing. Uh, Insomnia I shouldn't say easily treated, but can be treated with cognitive behavioral therapy, Uh, obstructive sleep apnea, narcolepsy, restless leg. Those are definitely um, for a sleep medicine doctor. Then we can look at the, I call them lifestyle choices. And simply being a first responder is a lifestyle choice. They never really told you this. I I mean, I know you suspected when you became a firefighter that you would probably have to get up out of bed at night and answer calls. I know that people suspected that, but I'm not sure they suspected how many times, how often, and how ridiculous some of those calls would be and how long they would last. But that is technically a choice. Then we have the, I'm going to stay up and play video games, have a bonfire, smoke a cigar, until God knows what time of the morning when the lieutenant has gone to bed hours before. There's the... I'm going to play games on my phone or my device, expose myself to blue light before bed. Definitely a choice. Alcohol. Alcohol is a huge one that people think helps them with sleep, but also greatly disrupts their sleep. Alcohol, nicotine, and caffeine. Speaking of caffeine, did Megan the Rescue RD go on her rant about caffeine? Oh, yeah. We spent quite a bit of time talking about uh, coffee and energy drinks. Yeah. Okay. Then I won't rant about it, but I'll just say this. Our choices matter. And if you are not sleeping and routinely consuming a lot of caffeine, that is somewhere that you can take a look at. If you are also the firefighter, you know the ones with the handlebar mustache down to here. They're like, I can drink a pot of coffee and go straight to sleep. Okay, but I guarantee you the quality of that sleep is not going to be optimal. So this job, uh, seven to nine hour sleep opportunity. There's, of course, sleep hygiene, which we can get into if you want to. There's the caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, which 
negatively impact our sleep, exposure to blue light and screens. There's a lot of different ways that we can F up our sleep ourselves. So I want to I want to go over two things real quick because I think that they're the most prevalent. Uh, when we're talking about caffeine, I thought this was extremely interesting. Um, but social media wise from some clips that Megan had done, we actually got some direct messages back in like, that's not true. Caffeine, why caffeine, caffeine doesn't matter. And these are from other, from first responders across the country, right? Random ones that just happened to listen. And then alcohol. Every Mm. single person I know thinks that alcohol is what helps them get to sleep. Yeah, it does. It's a sedative. It helps them get to sleep. But their quality of sleep, when you're looking at the response of their autonomic nervous system, fight or flight versus rest and digest or feed and breed, the quality of their sleep is diminished. And the caffeine, here's the thing. The caffeine does matter. (laughs) And, you know, there's There's authorities out there in the sports nutrition world. So let's take health and wellness off the table and let's just look at sports performance for a second. There's authorities out there that are doing research on up to nine milligrams per kilogram caffeine for sports performance. That's a lot of caffeine. But when we look at safety and efficacy and why we really consume caffeine, There aren't very many firefighters that are going, I got to have two bangs on the way to this fire so I can perform. It's an addiction. It's just an addiction. And the thing that Megan talks about, she brought this to light. I actually hadn't thought about this before, but first responders, fire, she works with fire, tend to control for their low mood with caffeine. So they're using it as a mental pick-me-up and so, yeah, in terms of caffeine and sleep, the, the research, the data are clear. It matters and, um, and alcohol too. Like I think al- the data with alcohol is probably even more compelling. Yeah, the data is definitely there with the alcohol portion. I have one question to ask about caffeine. Is there a certain time of day? So say if you just drink caffeine in the morning, right? Say we stop at 11 a.m. Is that equally as impactful as if you continue to drink caffeine throughout the day, like a soda, say 60 milligrams of, of caffeine instead of 85 that's in a cup of coffee. Is there like an optimal time to stop? We have to consider several things. The first one is there are slow metabolizers of caffeine and there are fast metabolizers of caffeine. I am a slow metabolizer. Again, I know this through the genetic testing. And there are people in the sports nutrition world who study just that, the metabolism of caffeine. But in general, the half-life of caffeine, so when you think of radiation and they're talking about the decay of radiation, the half-life is how long it takes for half of the level to be present. Same thing with caffeine. How long is it for half the level to be present and then the next half and the next half? And so typical is four to six hours. And so it's also highly personal though, because are you a fast metabolizer? Are you a slow metabolizer? Are you a habitual caffeine person or do you have that cup of coffee every few days? So there's lots to consider. But in general, I would say by 11, if you're stopping by 11 o'clock, that's pretty conservative. And it should be, I would, I would reckon 
How do you like that term? I would reckon nice. <laughs> it's not impacting your nighttime sleep. But again, what really matter what really matters? N equals one. And the one is you. It really matters what works for you. And I think one of the uh, most recent things that I heard, and I, I, I want to say Megan said it, but I'm a little fuzzy on where I heard it, but this concept of not drinking immediately when you get up, of not drinking coffee immediately because it's somehow connected to cortisol uh, tie-in. Is that, am I hitting close to that? You know what? I think that's something that Andrew Huberman had been saying recently, and I don't know an awful lot about his basis for saying that. What I do know is that Andrew Huberman has been saying some pretty wild things lately. (laughs) And so I'm, I'm less inclined to to take down those rabbit holes. The latest one was you should come, you should go out in the morning and get sun on your retinas right away. This is literally a tweet, I think, but make sure that you don't stare at the sun because you might damage your retinas and we currently don't have any way to replace retinas or something. I'm like, what is this guy even talking about that's so far out there? So to answer your question, I don't know if there's compelling data about waiting or not. I haven't. Sure. Well, let's serve. Haven't dove into it. Let me, let me circle back to a couple things for, I want to talk about the blue light, but before that, I want to, I want to follow up on the alcohol piece. So the alcohol, I think it's important to note to some of the naysayers that that uh, that what you're talking about of quality of sleep is now specifically for the first responders who are a high trauma industry. The quality of sleep is going to be vital to some of that processing. And you mentioned uh, a while ago that the uh, therapeutic services uh, may be assisting in some of that. But that but but if you're telling yourself you need an alcohol drink to go to sleep, which I did, I used to be one of those people, uh, then you're detrimentally harming so many areas of your life. Is that fair? Yeah, I would. I have a friend who was a former army ranger and he was basically, I have more than one friend that was in the military. I'm thinking of another one now, but they were basically drinking themselves to sleep and then stimulating themselves, caffeine, nicotine, you know, whatever they could get their hands on into wakefulness in order to not have to sit and process any of the things that they had seen and experienced. Sure. So, so the blue light, what is, what is the real um, disadvantage of staring at the phone or, or uh, even, you know, social media or both? Uh Expound on that a little bit for us. Just give the listeners a little bit of, uh, of, of, of feedback as to why that is harmful to the sleep. Think of it this way. Blue light evolutionarily is very new invention because before the invention of the light bulb, we got up when it got light. We stayed up maybe past dark, but it was by firelight, if at all. And so our circadian rhythms were very aligned with the light and the dark cycles. And so our secretion of melatonin was also very aligned with when we should be awake and when we should be sleeping. And then with the evolution of the light bulb, and then with the industrial revolution thereafter, when they figured out we could have factories open, making things 
around the clock and therefore we need police, fire, and whatever to uh, Amazon, uh, Amazon store, stocking shelves, Target, whatever. We need people to work around the clock. We became exposed to a spectrum of light that wasn't normal, natural, natural for us. And so we get this misalignment of our circadian rhythm. And the blue light is actually the, the key to wake up, whereas some of the other spectrums are light of light are the key to go to sleep. And so I want to hop on the circadian rhythm for another second because the World Health Organization has determined shift work to be a type 2A carcinogen. So remember we talked about aspartame, a 2B might cause car- uh, cancer in humans. A 2A is likely causes cancer in humans. So simply being subjected to shift work, whether you are a police officer, a firefighter, or that Amazon store shelf stalker, you have an increased risk um, of cancer due to that circadian disruption. And I think that was a a really powerful uh, message in and of itself to the first responder community when that came out, uh, that that uh, is a 2A carcinogen to, I think we all knew you know, shift work was really harmful and detrimental, but just to have it uh, in print to say, hey, this is a big deal uh, was really powerful. Well, you want to know the worst part? Let's hear it. So just over a year ago, um, the World Health Organization declared that the career of firefighting, they changed its designation from a 2B, which would be the same thing as aspartame, from a 2B to a group one carcinogen definitely causes cancer in humans. So now we have firefighting group one and we're shift workers group 2A. So there's a lot fighting against us. And obviously you're talking specifically to firefighters, but I think it's safe to say that uh, uh, the law enforcement community or the corrections community is very similar because of, of the shift work, depending on the shift work of, you know, Mm -hmm. what, what uh, nuances of your agency and how they, how they operate. Um, So, you know, with within that, and, and I'm glad you went down that uh, went down that road a little bit. Within that blue light piece, uh, let's transition as we kind of. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, and and as I, I don't want to leave off the opportunity of you uh, being giving us some proactive things uh, of what can we do better and how. What are some of the what are some of the simple things that we can do um, to be better at going to sleep? and getting good sleep. If you can go back in time and choose a different career, I would highly <laughs> encourage it. Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay. We can start with the simple things and the simple things are giving yourself that seven to nine hour sleep opportunity. You're never going to get seven to nine hours if you don't give yourself the opportunity. And then you can look into sleep hygiene, which everyone talks about it, a cool, dark room, um, you know, the leaving of the blue light, keeping it away from you, uh, the pets in your bed, kicking them out. I love them. I love the dogs. They shouldn't be in the bed. If you have a spouse that is disruptive, so sorry, sleep separately from your spouse. I'm not a marriage counselor. Sorry. Um, no television in your room because your brain, even when you're quote unquote sleeping, if your television is on, your brain is active. Those are kind of the big ones. Some smaller ones uh, for sleep hygiene, you could get 
Uh, there's red light bulbs as opposed to the regular blue light bulbs. In fact, there's a little, there's a product that hangs in your toilet. It's a red light bulb so that you don't have to turn on the lights when you have to pee at night and you don't pee on the floor. Pretty genius. But so seven to nine hour sleep opportunity, observing your sleep hygiene, taking that Pittsburgh sleep quality index. And if it looks like you have a sleep disorder, or if your partner tells you you're snoring, go get a sleep study and get treated. Those are kind of the big bang for the buck. And then ease up on that damn alcohol and caffeine, nicotine too. Those are kind of the big bang for the bucks. Well, I think it's safe to say that if you feel like you need alcohol to sleep, then we've got a bigger issue. Uh, but sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you there. No, 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 no. I just feel like you really need to be self-aware. And if just like you said, if you're using alcohol to fall asleep every night, there is a greater issue. And that issue usually involves some professional intervention. You know, and, and you and I originally, when we talked, we I, I referenced a book that even I've referenced on this podcast, and and uh, I'll lay it off the table here today. But uh, one of the things that that I remember reading in that book, uh, the sleep book, was um, was a consistency of really building towards a consistent sleep hygiene pattern. Uh, and you know, sleep hygiene doesn't sound all that sexy, but the reality is if you're purposeful and intentional about your sleep and the nuances of it, all the, all the attributes of it, uh, your sleep will change your life. Is that fair? I would argue that sleep saved my life and that's a huge rabbit hole to go down and I won't even start cause it takes too long. But what I do tell the men and women of the fire service, do you want to look, whoa, do you want to look better, feel better, play better? F better, do better on your promotional exams, likely make more money and be more su successful. The answer to all of the above is sleep. Such a great message. You know, yeah, that's a great message. I don't, I don't know that we could do any more than that right there. I feel like that's a great, uh, uh, stopping point for us. Austin, anything, anything to add on that? No, I, I, I love, I want to leave on that message because I'm thinking about my own life right yeah. now. And I'm like, yeah, that, that would work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, th there is a book, uh, Nick Kumalatis, who's a, a Marine uh, Force Recon guy, wrote a book, uh, Excommunicated Warrior, that early on in my recovery, I read, and it was so, his, his message is so simple, uh, figure out how to sleep well, get physically healthy, go to the doctor, get everything about uh, healthy, and then find something you're passionate about in life and go do it. Those was, that was his three-point message about living, living a healthy life. Sleep physically healthy and do something passionate. Um, this has been an amazing conversation, Annette. And, and how, uh, tell us a little bit about how, if somebody wants to reach out to you and find out more about uh, you or your program, where do they find you? Uh, what kind of, what kind of uh, information could you feed them? Uh, where, tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, I indicated that I have a business. I didn't tell you what it was called. That wasn't a very good business owner move. <laughs> I own and operate Fire Rescue Wellness. And my website is www.firerescuewellness.org, unfortunately, .com. Some, somebody stole it. Um, if you want to hear kind of what I'm doing in the world, I have a podcast that drops on Tuesday called, ironically, the Fire Rescue Wellness Podcast. But I work 
I kind of have two arms of my business. The first arm is working with fire agencies. I don't work with anyone one-on-one, so I don't do any coaching, nutrition, nothing one-on-one. I work with agencies and I can do education, program management, consultation. And then the other arm is there's not enough people like me. There's a lot of great coaches in the world, but the fire service is not interested in hearing what they have to say because they're outsiders. And so the other arm of my business is helping those coaches become culturally competent and then gain contracts and jobs with fire agencies. So I'm also active on social media on Instagram. That's probably my best platform. You're going to have a hard time guessing what my handle is, fire rescue wellness. I knew you'd get it. So follow me on Instagram. I try to do a couple, four or five good posts a week. Annette, thank you so much for taking time to come on here today and talk to us a little bit about sleep. I, uh, again, I'm, I'm very passionate about this. I love the topic. Uh, I just don't think we talk about it enough. And, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of other things that you've brought to the table today that I think we should invest some time in in the future. So, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate you both. And I hope you have a great day. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. First responder trauma counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-2224-19-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.